Hello, and welcome to the Lake Forest Church Huntersville Sermon Podcast. We are a community of skeptics, spiritual explorers, and longtime followers of Christ. To learn more about who we are as a church and how you can get connected, visit lakeforest.org. Good morning, Lake Forest. When I was little, one of my dad's favorite things to say was, of course, it's always the last place that I look. Now, I bet some of you kids sitting in the living room, you can point at your parents and say, ah, you say that as well. Now, most of the time that was said was a lot of frustration because my dad would be in the kitchen, for example, and he's looking for the peanut butter. And he's looking through every cabinet. He opens every cabinet, closes every cabinet, goes on for 10 minutes. And then finally he looks over and sitting on the counter in the corner is the jar of peanut butter, where it normally is. And he finds it, and in great frustration, his comment is, of course, it's the last place I'm going to look. Now, as a little kid, I respected my dad's authority. I respected my life uh, even more. And so everything in me wanted to say to him, well, dad, of course course is the last place you looked. Hopefully, you're not going to continue to look for it after you find it. Now, I find myself, uh, as I've gotten older, that this is a statement that I also make a lot of times. When I'm looking for things, I get frustrated. I open a door, and I find things, and I'm just frustrated because, ah, uh, it's the last place I looked. Well, obviously, it should always be the last place that you look because hopefully you're not continuing to look when you find what you're looking for. Last month, I did a funeral of a relative of a close friend. It was a hard funeral, but not because of the way the person died, but it was hard because of the way the person lived. He was my friend's stepdad. He was a man that for 40 years had been the uh, parent, the step-parent of three children and a woman that he married 40 years earlier. He was just a phenomenal stepdad. But what had ended up happening uh, in the last couple of years of his life, he made some very poor decisions. He made some pretty lousy decisions, some very hurtful decisions, some decisions that were very hard for the family to look past, and it made it really difficult for them to remember the other 38 years where he was a phenomenal stepdad. So I shared with the family the story of the person that I'm going to talk about today And at the end of my time, I challenged them, don't let his life be defined by the last place that you look. You see, the challenge for many of us is that our own lives and the the lives of others are often completely written by one bad decision, by one bad post, by one bad attitude, one bad day, one bad week, a bad year, or, or just a 1% of our life is usually what defines our entire life. And because of these, the entire rest of our story tends to not be told or is completely forgotten. What's the 1%? What's that one decision, that one day, that one thing that you hope will not define your entire life. What's the one area, the one broken piece of your life that you continue to let define you or others continue to define you by? You see, I believe we're living in a world right now that a bad decision, a poor post, 
a differing opinion expressed with the wrong attitude, it now runs the risk of defining your entire story, no matter how the rest of your life might have looked. And that story is partly written by you. We have to put good thought into what we say and how we say it, where we say it. We have to think about what we do, how we do it, and and where we do those things. Freedom is not doing and saying whatever we want. It's also taking responsibility for what we do and what we say and knowing that it does affect others. We write part of our own stories by being responsible with our freedom. But at the same time, part of our story, sadly, is also written by others and how they choose to respond. Right now, Our world is writing the story in many ways that I believe are completely counter to the way that Jesus calls his followers to respond. And what I am hoping, what I am praying, is that the followers of Jesus will start leading our world in a way that Jesus calls us to respond instead of following the world in the way that it is responding right now. For those of you that have chosen to follow Jesus, Jesus actually gives us clear direction in how we can write amazing God stories when we or someone else makes a poor decision. We've been given the power to turn a story that's a tragedy into a story of rebirth. It only takes one thing to write a different story. It's the one thing that I believe Jesus illustrated to his followers better than anything else. And Jesus Christ has given those that have chosen to follow him the power to actually live out this one thing. That one thing is forgiveness. Forgiveness. It's not something that we're seeing much these days, is it? In a country that's now celebrating its freedom, our false understanding of freedom is actually leading to blame, shame, fighting for rights, seeking revenge, attitudes of my party, not your party. And my opinion can be better because I can yell it a lot louder. Now, I don't know about you, but I have to admit, I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted from it. I actually just got back from two weeks of vacation. Before I left, I was exhausted. I've come back. I thought it was work primarily that was exhausting me, but I'm still exhausted. I thought a few weeks ago I was exhausted from the effects of COVID-19. I'm not. I don't like the effects of it. It makes things harder, but I'm not exhausted from that. I thought I was exhausted by the issue of racism and the protesting and the rioting. I'm not. I hate that it continues to be an issue. Much like many sins that I see in my life and other people's lives, I wish it would go away, but it continues to pop its ugly head up. But I have to tell you, that's not what exhausts me. I'm exhausted because everywhere I look is a lack of forgiveness. I'm exhausted because everywhere I look, there's only blame, shame, pride, there's nothing that anyone in our country right now is willing to say, hey, we agree on that. We're wanting to prove our view of whether we wear a mask or we don't wear a mask, whether we keep social distance or we don't, white supremacy or not, black lives matter or not, and we're screaming, listening, listen to me, and yet we're unwilling 
to listen to another. And it just seems right now that the mission in our country is to constantly find something to disagree about. And it's playing out in ways that we can't even see. One of the plays I notice in myself, and maybe you notice, maybe you notice in your workplace, are you finding it harder to have a different opinion on basic work matters? Are you finding you have less patience with people that just disagree on small work things? They have a different idea, but maybe it just irritates you to a higher level. Maybe at home. Are you finding that with your spouse, with your children, with your roommates, that just the small things you disagree with, there's no patience for any longer? It seems like you are like me. You're starving for any situation where someone would agree. You're starving for any situation where forgiveness would be given. We're worn out by the constant fighting and disagreeing that we see all around us. And if you hear me say anything today out of the story that I'm going to share with you, it's this. Church, let's start leading our nation in the way of Jesus. Let's start showing our nation how to forgive. We are the ones that have been given this power, so let's use it. Our nation is so hungry for examples of people forgiving and agreeing. And if we choose to follow Jesus to the cross of forgiveness, I promise you that we can write some wonderful God stories that start because of forgiveness. But we're going to have to be the ones that lead. And that first step is to stop following the path of blame, the path of shame, and the path of pride. So today's story I'm going to share with you is actually a tragedy, but it's a tragedy that I believe could have been a rebirth story if forgiveness had been shown. As I share it with you, I want you to ponder this question. What story is a tragedy in your life today? Could forgiveness turn it into a story of rebirth? Today we're going to Look at a person who's extremely familiar in the Bible, a character that's very familiar, but his story's not very familiar. It's an unfamiliar story because of decisions that he made the last week of his life, and they were so drastic that it's all the entire world and all of history, that's all that they remember are the last choices he made in the last week of his life. His story is stuck in the last place that people are looking. In fact, other than Jesus, I'm going to bet this person's story, his name is probably the most famous biblical name in all of the world. Even to those who don't go to church, those who don't read the Bible, they know his name. His name is so well known, but it's extremely rare you will ever meet a person with his name. We're going to look at the story of Judas. Judas Iscariot. Judas as soon as I just mention his name to you, you know the two things that he's most known for. Judas, the man who betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Judas, the man that took his own life by hanging himself. That's what we know about his entire life. It's why I've never once met a person named Judas. I'm not saying they're not out there, but I'm saying it's an extremely unpopular name. In fact, I know a Judah, I know a Jude, 
But never once in my life have I ever met a Judas. In, late, in the late 60s, Bob Dylan actually gave his name a greater chance of bouncing back when he wrote the song, The Ballad of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest. Now, there was a heavy metal English band that loved that name, Judas Priest, and in 1969, they formed and said, hey, let's grab a hold of that, and that's where the band Judas Priest came from. Now, because this band took on that name, in 1975, the name Judas actually moved up to its highest rank in popularity of names. It actually moved up to the position of 3,794. That means that parents all over America found 3,793 other names they'd rather name their kid than Judas. If your name is Judas, I want to say, I am so sorry I'm deeply offending you right now. But here's the thing. I think I've got a good chance of not offending any of you. Because in the last 100 years in the United States of America, only 329 people have been named Judas. What's interesting is the name Judas is a Greek name. It's taken from the Hebrew name Judah, which actually means the praised one. But here's the other things we know about Judas. Judas, chosen to be one of the original 12 followers of Jesus. Judas, sent out as one of the 12 with the other 11 to go and proclaim the name of Jesus. Judas, a company for three years, he watched, he listened, he learned from Jesus as Jesus proclaimed to be the Messiah. Judas was put in charge of all of their money. He was the treasurer, so he was evidently really good with money, and he was also trustworthy until later in his journey. Here's what we read about the last week of Judas's life. John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why was it this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wage. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus said. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So we watch Judas as treasure. He's obviously deeply bothered that a year's wage is poured out on Jesus' feet and wasted. As treasure, that should alarm you. But it doesn't alarm him for the reason that he gives. He says he's caring about the poor, but really what he's most interested in is what he has just lost. The story goes on after this event. What we find is Judas gets very frustrated with Jesus. After three years of being with him, seeing what he feels like he's wasting money, he's frustrated, he's done. And he knew that the religious leaders were trying to capture Jesus. Matthew chapter 26 then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest, and he asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? 
So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas just watched a lady pour out a year's worth of wage, and it frustrated him. And so he went to these religious leaders and said, what would it cost? And they offer him one month's wage, one piece of silver equal to a day's wage, and they offered him 30 of this. And so this became attractive to him, and a day or two after this event, Jesus and Judas and the other disciples are sitting down for their very last supper together. John chapter 13, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples, they stared at one another at a loss to which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter, well, he motioned to this disciple and said, hey, hey, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, go do it quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some of them thought that Jesus was telling him, go buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. And as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. The disciple whom Jesus loved is known as John, the one who's writing these words. And he's able to write these because he was the one who was able to whisper to Jesus, who is it? And Jesus says, the one that I hand this bread to after I dip it. He dips it, and Judas then takes, and he says, go and do what you're going to do quickly. And all the other disciples are confused. Judas leaves, and then Jesus finishes the Last Supper with the rest of the disciples. After this, he then invites three other disciples to go with him, where he goes into a garden, and he prays. After the long night of praying, he then is talking to his disciples, and we find in verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas says, greetings, rabbi, and kisses him. Jesus replies, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. That's the story of Judas, betraying him with a kiss. Now, many of us, we do some bad things in our life, and I hear people say to me, well, the devil made me do it. Now, I don't believe that necessarily for you, but we know for a fact that the devil made Judas do it. But Judas's story was well written before he was even born. In fact, we have multiple prophecies hundreds of years before Judas's birth that predicted his betrayal. Zechariah 11 predicted Jesus would be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. 
Psalm 41.9 predicted that Jesus' betrayer would share his bread. John 6.70, Jesus predicts his betrayal long before it happens. You see, God knew of this disastrous turn of events long before it ever occurred. God was not blindsided by the betrayal of Judas. In fact, it was part of his plan. And in order to save the world from sin, the Bible claims Jesus had to die, and God therefore used Judas's betrayal to help bring about the salvation of his people. His betrayal was critical to the story of Jesus. Anytime that Christians around the world participate in what we call communion, you will always hear these words on the night that he was betrayed, telling us that on the very night that Jesus was betrayed, he still chose to go through the acts of his body being broken and his blood being poured out. He still chose forgiveness. And it's the example for all of us. Even on a night that you're betrayed, you can choose forgiveness. Judas' action shows us nothing we do alters the plans of Jesus. Nothing you do stops his forgiveness. Even the tragedies in our lives, the events that we hate that happen in our lives, can be used by God to tell a kingdom story. Your life is never out of God's hands. However, I do believe that our kingdom stories can be short. They can be cut short by people like the Pharisees. The Pharisees didn't choose forgiveness, but they cut the God story that I believe could have been written with Judas's life short. Matthew 27, verse 1. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, they led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. He returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders. I've sinned, he said, for I've betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and he left. Then he went away and hanged himself. I have sinned. I have betrayed innocent blood. Isn't that confession? Judas throws the money into the temple. Is that not repentance? Confession is admitting your wrong behavior. Repentance is turning your actions around. But he went and hung himself, partly because of the remorse that he had, but mainly because the confession and the repentance were given to the very people who were so to forgive, and they denied forgiveness for him. The priest, the chief priest, the elders of the church, the people of God, the leaders of God's people, the very people that were given the power to say, we're glad you came to repent. We're glad you confess. We give you forgiveness. And yet they say, what is that to us? His betrayal of Jesus was going to happen. That part of the story was written by God. But his suicide was never prophesied. Could he have been forgiven and another story written? 
we'll never know. But I do promise you, church, if you choose forgiveness, you have the chance of rewriting amazing stories. You have the chance to write God's stories of rebirth. And here's what's really interesting about this story to me. I want you to hear about what's happening all around while this is going on in Judas's life. That the end of Judas's life, here's what else is happening. A murderer named Barabbas is forgiven by the people and let go instead of releasing the innocent Jesus the same day that Judas hung himself. Soldiers that nailed Jesus to the cross, they're gambling for his clothes. They're mocking him at the foot of the cross the day after Judas' death. And Jesus says, forgive them, Father. A thief, just like Judas, hung on a cross beside Jesus and asked for forgiveness. And Jesus replies, you will be with me in paradise. Another disciple of Jesus named Peter, on the same day that Judas betrayed him, denies Jesus three times. A week later, Jesus comes back, reinstates him, and says, on you, the rock, I will build my church. All of these things are happening at the same time of Judas' story. A man that comes to religious leaders filled with remorse, confesses his sin, repents of his sin, and yet is told, what is that to us? That's your responsibility. Because of their lack of forgiveness, he goes, hangs himself, and his story is written forever as the betrayer and the man that committed suicide. It ends in a tragedy. Why? Because of the lack of forgiveness by the people of God. Why wouldn't they forgive him? I think you're actually going to find this really interesting in our time. Months before this story, after Jesus does a healing in chapter 11 of John, we read this. John chapter 11, so the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and the nation. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Now here's where you discover what's really going on. The Jewish council members feared Rome far more than they feared God. They feared that if Jesus, a Jew, got to be very popular, and he called himself king, he would raise up a multitude of people that would follow him and call him king, and to raise up another king is against Roman law. And if he were to do that, Jewish people would follow him, and the Roman government would come in and squash him and all other Jews, including the council. After Judas betrays Jesus and is captured, the Pharisees, they don't have the authority to crucify Jesus, and so they trick the Romans into thinking that he is doing something wrong by calling himself king, and they have the Roman government crucify him. And they have the Roman government kill Jesus so their Jewish council and their religious power would not be squashed. The Pharisees had a political agenda that became far more important than their biblical call. When Judas came to them looking for forgiveness, their political agenda was more important than their biblical call. I'm going to bet 
We can identify with that today. And this is the part, personally, that exhausts me. I'm watching far too many people that say they're followers of Jesus slowly let their political agenda and conviction push out their very Jesus-empowered calling to forgive. And we are cutting short the amazing stories that God can write in others' lives because we're fighting for political gain instead of God-empowered change. And we see the fruit of this all around us, church. But I'm going to ask you, church, what if, what if we led the way and began to give our nation examples of what forgiveness looks like? What if we took all other agendas and put them underneath, not do away, but put them underneath our initial call to give forgiveness and to show the world the power of forgiveness? It doesn't mean that politics aren't important or that justice issues aren't important. It simply means that the way we approach them is different. We place them under gentleness and kindness, self-control, and a heart filled with the willingness to forgive anyone who would dare to offend me. So how do you live a life that oozes forgiveness and turns tragedy into rebirths. Here's what I hope you'll grab a hold of, church, and we will begin to lead people in this way. First, remember your story. When we are hurt by someone, the last place we look is at what they did to us. It's hard to keep looking. But the first place we're called to look is to the forgiveness that Jesus has given us. Remember your story. Second, admit your hurt. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you're not hurt. Sometimes the hurt is so painful, it just needs to simmer for a while until you can get to a point of forgiveness. But you have to admit you're hurt. Third is you've got to identify with Jesus. The only way we can forgive is to look at him and remember on the night that he was betrayed, he forgave. But revenge is so much easier. It's so much easier to look at somebody and say, I hate what you just did to me. In fact, you shouldn't do that to anyone. I despise that you did it at all. Instead, though, I'm going to do the very same thing to you. And there, you see how it feels. I feel better. But now I've just done the very thing that they did that I hate it. But instead, we're called to look to Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, he forgave. Fourth, Trust in God's power to change you. Don't worry about the other person. Start with you. Lord, can you change my heart to a place that I can forgive them? After you take that step, then you need to believe in God's power to change them. And when you forgive, your job is not to change the other person. You simply continue the story and you watch for the way God can change them. Six, forgive does not mean trust. I've forgiven a number of people that I still don't trust. Trust takes a long time to rebuild. Forgiveness can happen immediately. Lastly, keep forgiveness as your calling and mission. Lead those around you to see your life, one that exudes that oozes out forgiveness, one that has lived out forgiveness, one that is now free because it has forgiven. Our nation needs those stories. It's the true freedom that will give. What story are you asking God to turn from a tragedy 
into a rebirth. Right now I'm praying for our country and mostly I'm praying that the church, Christ followers, would lead the way to giving our nation examples of what we're starving for and that's forgiveness.